0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: The rivalry between America and Russia defined the second half of the last century. By the end, it had an element of farce. In September of 1994, Russia's president, Boris Yeltsin, visited Washington for his first summit with Bill Clinton. It was to be one of the most shambolic state visits ever. Yeltsin's boozing caused plenty of awkward public moments, but years later, the historian Taylor Branch revealed how things were even more serious in private. Secret service agents discovered Yeltsin alone on Pennsylvania Avenue, dead drunk, clad in his underwear, yelling for a taxi. Yeltsin yelled at the agents too slurring his speech. He wanted to go out for pizza. The next night, Clinton told Branch, the Russian president again tried to sneak out of Blair House, the building across from the White House where visiting dignitaries stay. Yeltsin nearly got himself killed when protection officers mistook him for a drunken intruder. Ever since Vladimir Putin took over the presidency, he's been focused on making this humiliating chapter of Russian history anomalous – And doing his best to make American presidents look foolish. Can Joe Biden avoid the bear trap? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, the Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, How should President Biden deal with Russia? Vladimir Putin is behaving like a gangster once again. Russia's main opposition leader is gravely ill in prison, and its military is amassing on the border with Ukraine. Putin has outlasted four US presidents. The calibrated American diplomacy that ended the Cold War has been replaced by policies varying wildly between confrontation and appeasement. Can the new president craft a more effective foreign policy? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the US Digital Editor. John, I'm going to bypass the usual chit-chat about what you've been cooking and ask you about the Derek Chauvin verdict. Because although we're going to be talking about US-Russia relations this week, obviously that was an important thing that happened this week and something you've been watching
2: for a while and and covering. Yeah, on Tuesday, Derek Chauvin was found guilty of secondary murder, third-degree murder and secondary manslaughter. It was, I think, the seventh conviction of a police officer for a shooting on duty since 2005. It wasn't a big surprise. The jury was out for only about 10 hours. They didn't ask the judge any questions. And the evidence was straightforward, right? It wasn't a complicated case. Everyone saw that, that video. But it was appropriate nonetheless, I think. This is a sense of accountability that's not often seen for police actions. And uh, it's something we should talk about, not the verdict itself, but, but American policing. It's something we're going to talk about on the show in a couple of weeks. Do you think this conviction on its own changes anything very much? I don't think anything changes anything on its own, but I think there is a sense that the verdict is part of a growing move toward police accountability. And you see that not just in the verdict and how it played out, but in the increasing amount of legislation around the country that calls for transparency and accountability. I think it's part of a growing change in the terms of engagement between America's police and the people they police. Charlotte, how about you? Do you think this trial and this
1: verdict is going to change policing in America?
3: In some ways, I think it has already in that the statements of support from different very prominent police chiefs around the country saying that justice was served, whether Ray Kelly, the police commissioner, the former police commissioner of New York, um, there were police commissioners in Texas. Uh, So I think that that is important, given that historically police have been such a unified front in protecting their own ranks. And clearly they wanted to emphasize that Derek Chauvin deserved Uh, conviction. But I think that the challenge going forward is there are some people who want to paint Derek Chauvin as a single bad apple and others who point to more systemic issues. So the question of which argument wins out will determine how quickly other police departments do or don't reform.
1: Well, we're going to be talking more about this in the next few weeks as we get closer to the anniversary of George Floyd's death, which falls at the end of May. But this week, we're focusing on Russia. Joe Biden has had plenty to deal with in his first 100 days, but it's always been a knack of Vladimir Putin's over the years to find ways to troll American presidents while they're distracted. Let's hear first from James Bennett, who's written for the US Pages this week on how the White House is responding to Putin's provocations.
4: The Biden administration has made quite clear that they'd like to be paying as much attention as possible to China right now. But President Vladimir Putin has certainly succeeded in getting their attention two ways. He has massed now more than 100,000 troops along Ukraine's eastern border. It's the largest movement of Russian troops seen in that area since Russia invaded and annexed Crimea in 2014. The Americans do not know what he's up to, and they're monitoring that situation very closely with a high degree of anxiety. And at the same time, the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, is said by his lawyers to be near death. He's been on a hunger strike protesting the conditions of his imprisonment. The administration has raised grave concerns about his condition, and uh, they're monitoring both these situations very closely.
1: James, nobody thinks that dealing with Vladimir Putin is easy. But what mistakes do the Biden team think previous administrations have made in dealing with Putin? And, and how do they
4: think they might be able to do better? Yeah, there's some argument about how much influence anybody can hope to have over Vladimir Putin. But the Biden people definitely believe the Americans have kind of gotten it wrong, over the last 12 years, and they take some responsibility for that too, because so many of the Biden people, including, of course, Joe Biden himself, were members of Barack Obama's administration. But in retrospect, they view Obama's administration as having been rather naive in their approach to the Russians and having sought a reset, as they called it at the time, believing that somehow they could really work with Putin. And then, of course, Donald Trump pursued his own rather strange version of a reset with the Russian president, um, whom he actually joked with about election interference in the 2016 election. He said that they were friends. Victoria Nuland, whom um, Joe Biden has appointed to be the third-ranking State Department official, who's likely to have a lot of influence over the Russian file for this administration, has written that the um, previous two administrations were guilty of uh, ambivalence and neglect towards Russia that effectively enabled Putin to meddle, not just across the border in Ukraine, but in Syria and elsewhere. Russia is one of the places where, in a sense, the Biden people are getting a bit of a do-over, and they want to apply the hard lessons that they learned under Barack Obama about how you deal with a guy like Vladimir Putin.
1: I was struck by one thing in particular in the piece you wrote this week about Russia, that the Biden administration's put in some pretty tough sanctions on Russians, but was very clear to telegraph them in advance, gave the Russian government a couple of days warning, and at the same time, made it clear that they were keen to
4: have some kind of summit. Why do things that way? Yeah, there was a kind of a kabuki quality to a lot of what happened. Joe Biden called Vladimir Putin two days before he imposed these sanctions, basically told him, these are coming. You know, I have to do it. I can't tolerate either your election interference in 2020 or this solar winds cyber hack. Joe Biden came out publicly a couple of days later and said that he had urged him to respond proportionately. That is, they knew the Russians were going to have to react somehow. And he was basically saying, don't escalate. You know, I had to do what I have to do. I know you have to do what you have to do. And at the same time, he um, held out the offer of a summit meeting, which is something that Vladimir Putin really wants. I don't want to suggest that these sanctions aren't serious. They are a basis for increasing the economic pain if Russia does take even more provocative steps or even potentially enters Ukraine, or if, heaven forbid, Alexei Navalny does die.
1: Charlotte, as James mentioned there, the Obama administration in 2009 tried a reset. The Trump administration tried its own version of a reset when it took office in 2017, and it was more like a bear hug than than a reset. Joe Biden's approach to Russia is already quite different.
3: Yes, that's right. One of the things that James Bennett wrote about this week, which stuck with me, is the way in which Biden is... Communicating with Russia with a few mixed messages. So of course he announced these sanctions in April, which are an aggressive move. But as you say, he he asked for a commensurate response from Russia. And then he also raised this possibility of a summit on arms control in Europe later this summer. And I think as James has pointed out, and I've observed in his in Biden's relations specifically with China as well is a different kind of approach in which you recognize that there are countries and leaders that are clear adversaries, but also that you occasionally have to work with them. So the question is this really delicate balance of finding ways in which you can be aggressive and firm, but also not cut off relations entirely and leave some space for a leader to engage with the United States. And I've seen that most clearly in the way that Biden is interacting with China, in that America has announced sanctions against certain Chinese officials. Clearly, they want to hold China to account on Xinjiang. And there's uh, additional escalation possible over Taiwan. But you also see Kerry trying to Create some wiggle room to cooperate with China. And there's a lot of talk both of cooperation and competition with China on climate and on energy issues. So, there again, you have this sort of mixed messages, which sometimes would seem to be a sign of incoherent strategy. But I think in this instance, both with Russia and with China, and with other countries, frankly, that you see Biden dealing with in the first 100 days of administration, I think it's actually very strategic mixed messaging, where you want to be firm while allowing a little bit of space for for cooperation.
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting as well. I mean, American foreign policy is often characterized as being either hawkish or dovish towards a particular country or a particular problem. And with Russia, like with China, there's this approach that says, okay, we're going to sanction these people, we're going to denounce what they're doing, and we're also going to try and do an arms control deal with them. I think previous administrations might have said, oh, well, we can't be too tough because we do want them to do this thing for us. The Biden administration is experimenting with this approach. Who knows whether it'll work or not? I think we'll see that over the next few years. That combines
2: hawkishness and dovishness at, at the same time, John. It does. His use of sanctions was predictable. Whether it's effective is another question. Um, Alexei Navalny, as I understood it, presented a letter, his people presented a letter to the United States in which they said, look, these are the people you really want to target. These are oligarchs with money in New York and homes in Miami who would really be hurt if you sanctioned them. Those, as I understand, were not the targets of the sanctions. The sanctions targeted you know, known officials who have already taken steps, as Russia's economy has generally, to isolate themselves from the West. So there is an element, as you say, of hawkishness as well as dovishness in in Biden's approach. But they're both, at least for the moment, following very predictable patterns.
1: You make a good point on sanctions, because Charlotte, there's also a good piece in this week's issue pointing out quite what a siege economy Russia is these days. It's de-dollarized its foreign reserves. It's tried to reduce reliance on American tech companies to the extent that there are pretty successful local rivals to American tech giants like Google. Trying to change the Russian government's behavior through sanctions is, I don't think it was ever easy, but it's certainly not an easy thing to do now. The US government simply doesn't have the leverage here that it once might have.
3: That's right. But you do also see what I describe maybe as a vice that's moving very slowly on Russia, because you have um, an economy that is not thriving, clearly, despite the attempts to isolate uh, Russia and protect it from the threat of Western sanctions. There's not been broad growth. Russia's very heavily dependent on oil and gas revenue for 40% of its total revenue. And then you have Putin's popularity, which is declining. I was struck by figures ahead of the parliamentary election scheduled for September, in which Putin's party has just a 27% approval rating. So I think that there's um, a long-term challenge, which is that Putin is extremely reluctant to give up power, and as we write about this week, is therefore becoming more and more repressive. But his popularity is waning, and the economy is struggling.
2: And. Putin is also facing international pressure over his treatment of Alexei Navalny, pressure that I think he may not have anticipated, and it's coming not just from the predictable governments from America and Europe, it's coming from private actors too. We had a letter in our pages this week signed by, I think at this point it's over 100 intellectuals, public figures, urging him to just let Navalny seek medical treatment. It's hard to see why he doesn't do that. The extent to which he seems to have let himself be put into a corner by Navalny um, is really extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And is an extraordinary figure. There's a nice line
1: in the piece this week written by our colleague Arkady Ostrovsky, who knows Navalny pretty well. And he says, his career has been a crusade against apathy and learned helplessness, which I just thought was a terrific line. Okay, thank you both. We'll hear from someone who was in the room last time Joe Biden met Vladimir Putin in a moment. But first, a reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, then you're missing out. It's simple to sign up. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash pod. There's plenty more reporting from Moscow and on the Derek Chauvin trial to read, plus a great piece in the art section on the decline of awards ceremonies. Who wants to watch tearful lovies when your time would be more wisely spent at economist.com slash US pod. The link is in the notes for this episode. Let's spend some time now trying to put this latest escalation into some context. Fasman, you've been speaking to someone who's witnessed Putin's relationship with American presidents up
2: close. That's right. I spoke yesterday evening with Michael McFall, who spent some time as ambassador to Russia under the Obama administration. He's a Russian scholar who is now at Stanford, someone who's always worth listening to and thinking about on Russia. He was there last time Biden and Putin met almost exactly 10 years ago when Biden was VP. He said the two men were businesslike and cordial.
5: A lot of people don't understand two things about Russia that I think are important. One, Russia today is not Russia of 1991 or 1999, when we all kind of fixated on Russia as a declining power. The Soviet Union had just collapsed. That image still sticks, at least with Americans and with people in the U.S. government today, and that's just wrong. Russia has a lot of capacity these days on lots of dimensions of power. Uh, You know, maybe their economy is not in the top three, but it's in the top 10 or top six if you measure uh, purchasing power parity. Uh, But then on other measures, nuclear weapons, conventional, cyber, propaganda, they have a lot of capacity. And remember, within that economy, uh, the the economy is not as big as the American or Chinese economy, but the of the pie that is there, Putin controls a whole lot more of it than Joe Biden does. Um, you know, he he controls both the private stuff and he can divert money into things that he cares about, like intelligence and cyber and and nuclear weapons, which he very proudly talked about in his latest remarks uh, before the the Russian Parliament. So that's the first thing they can do more, and then two and this makes me even more nervous, Putin has shown that he's got a pretty high tolerance for risky behavior. And I think we continue to underestimate that. You know, nobody, I was in the government right before Putin annexed Crimea and invaded Eastern Ukraine. Yes, there were some, you know, there were some people red teaming that it might be a scenario. That's what all governments do. But I think most of the world was surprised that he did that. 2015, Putin intervened in Syria. Nobody predicted that. 2016, they intervened in our elections here in the United States in a rather dramatic, audacious way, as we now know. You put capacity together with somebody that's willing to take risky actions and then add one more dimension, which is that he's no longer, you know, Putin doesn't want to be a member of the liberal international order. Maybe 20 years ago, he did. You know, he's he, his views have changed over time, but he fundamentally sees himself as as the anti-America, the anti-liberal. So the idea that somehow he might be punished if he acts outside of that order, I don't think he really cares. And so that does you put that all together, I think it's a pretty precarious moment.
2: Given this increased capacity, this increased tolerance of risk what is it for to what end does vladimir putin have an overall
5: geopolitical strategic goal i do think putin is more of a of an ideological actor than many people believe which is to say that he has a core set of beliefs that he just articulated again yesterday that you know he kind of sees himself as the last great conservative leader uh, as defined by him not defined by me but uh orthodox conservative values uh against multilateralism against the decadent liberal west uh you know he's particularly obsessed with talking about lgbt rights he's always criticizing that and you know he thinks of himself as this leader of an alternative worldview for the first 15 years or so of his time in russia he as leader of russia he was dedicated to propagating those ideas domestically. But I would say for the last decade, he's now trying to export those ideas as well. That's why he puts so much money into Russia today and Sputnik. That's why he gives money to people like Marie Le Pen in France. Uh, That's why they hold conferences where all these kind of characters get together. I call it the illiberal international. and. You know, he's got some allies, you know, Victor Orban in Hungary, uh, Salvini in uh, Italy, Le Pen in France, and Donald Trump here in the United States. I mean, in many ways, there was more ideological affinity between President Trump and President Putin than there was, I would say, between President Biden and President Trump. That's a pretty big statement. And that means that this ideological battle between, you know, orthodox nationalism and, and liberal values, I, small l when I use the word uh, liberal there, is within countries. It's not just between countries like the Cold War. Beyond
2: just the headline measures, sort of at a, at a deeper level, how have successive administrations changed how they deal with Vladimir Putin over the years, and have there been any
5: notable successes, any failures, any patterns? You know, when Vladimir Putin first came to power, he was an accidental president. You know, he worked for Boris Yeltsin. People forget this. First, he worked for the most pro-democratic Western mayor in Russia at the time. Uh, Anatoly Subchak was his name. Uh, And I knew Subchak. And that's when I met Putin, when he was working for him. Back then, he was much more pro-market and he's much more pro-Western without question. Um, And then, you know, uh, uh, September 11th happened, 2001. And that event actually brought Putin and, and George W. Bush, President Bush together. And it was real, by the way, it was not, it was not made up. I've listened to Vladimir Putin talk about his relationship with uh, George W. Bush and he was very fond of him because he thought they had a common fight against terrorism around the world and that would bring the two countries together. Um, over time, Putin's become more suspicious of the West for a couple of reasons. One, our use of force in Iraq, for instance, where he thought we were violating the international rules of the game, by the way, not without reason. Our German and French allies thought the same. But then number two, and this is you know, most certainly when I listened to him speak to President Obama, when I worked at the White House, became really apparent to me, Putin became very paranoid about alleged Western support for democratic movements against autocracies, Many of which were close to Russia. So, starts with Serbia in 2000, Georgia 2003, Ukraine 2004, the so-called color revolutions. Then you get another burst of that activity in the Arab Spring. Uh, And I was, you know, I was at those meetings with Putin and Obama, where he said, you know, I know what you guys are doing. You're fomenting revolution here. And then that same year, and I think this was the pivotal moment, uh, 2011. We had massive demonstrations in Russia against a falsified vote. And in Putin's mind, that was the, you know, the invisible CIA hand plotting his overthrow. By the way, John, that's exactly when I showed up to be the the U.S. ambassador to Russia. And so he blamed America, Obama and me personally, and sometimes me personally sitting in the room with him, that we were seeking to overthrow him. So that's when he became paranoid about us. And then one more thing, one more replay of that from his perspective. Ukraine, 2013, massive demonstrations. Eventually, his, his guy, Yanukovych, flees. For him, that's the American sinister hand. And that's when he decided, okay, enough is enough. That's why I'm going into Crimea. And that's when I think he's moved in this other way.
2: So you mentioned Crimea. You were there in, in 2014 when he annexed Crimea. And Ukraine is a flashpoint again this time why is ukraine so tricky for western policymakers what is it
5: about ukraine that means what, what do we get wrong about it i literally left my post in moscow the day that putin went into crimea uh, but obviously i was there for the you know the run-up to that and the way i listened to him talk about it he saw in these massive demonstrations the overthrow of his ally on his borders Uh, in a country, by the way, that Putin believes should not exist. For him, the Ukrainian nation and ethnicity is no different from Russia. Number two, he believes, you know, he's an old school, 19th century kind of guy that believes in sphere of influence. And, you know, this is, in his view, their sphere of influence. But the most important thing is, number three, Putin makes an argument in, in his own society, he just did a few days ago, he underscored it, that Russians and Slavs are different than Europeans. And I think it's part of his subtle argument to justify autocracy, right? Russians love a strong czar. It's part of our traditions as Slavic people. And he, he speaks in those terms, right? A democratic Ukraine undermines that narrative. And I think that's why he's obsessed with what's happening there. And then conversely, if you're somebody in the West who believes in democratic values, universal values, Ukraine is the front line of that fight. And that's why I hope that the Biden administration will see, you know, I actually believe it's the most important thing they should do. If you want to contain Putin's belligerent behavior, which they've they've said, that's their policy goal, the most important thing you can do is try to help consolidate democratic practices and market institutions in Ukraine.
1: Well, John F., that was a fascinating interview. I just wanted to pick up with you quickly where Mike McFool left off. So much of US policy towards Russia seems to go through Ukraine, and yet Uh, For reasons that I guess are obvious to anybody who covered the last presidential campaign in the U.S., Ukraine is also a subject that American politicians are reluctant to go near.
2: Yeah, I think there's a bit of a gun shy aspect to, if not to our actual policy, then to how we frame our policy in America. Ukraine was just such a mire for the last administration that I think that policymakers on both sides are holding it at a certain degree of arm's length for now. And as Ambassador McFall said, I think that's a shame. I think there is no more important thing that American foreign policy can do than try to show that Ukraine can be a stable, functioning, flourishing democracy, because it really, in itself, that would puncture the heart of Vladimir Putin's arguments and his and his reason for holding power.
3: The thing about Ukraine, of course, is that it's been central to two of the biggest political problems for each party over the past four years, starting with Trump's first impeachment, and then, of course, with Hunter Biden. Uh, Joe Biden's son being accused by Republicans of improper dealing there.
1: Yeah, that is exactly the problem, Charlotte. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to talk about how Biden can get beyond all that, possibly, and to hear from one of the great American foreign policy strategists.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: On the Economist Asks podcast this week, our colleague Anne McElvoy has been speaking to one of the giants of American statecraft, Henry Kissinger was the man Presidents Nixon and Ford turned to to plot superpower strategy in the Cold War. Now aged 97, he's still in touch with the major players and he's been telling Anne that Joe Biden needs to think big.
6: With Russia, we have not had a serious discussion basically since Crimea. So the Russian relationship has an immediacy of confrontation. I believe a dialogue with Russia is also important and has been neglected by the West because the idea has gained force that it is not possible to negotiate with Russia and that one has to sort of wait for a Putin disintegration. And that is a very unstatement-like way Of dealing with a historical uh, process.
3: I'm interested in how you would pursue that. You've met Vladimir Putin on many occasions, uh, as he's not very readily accessible in recent times uh, to many Western statesmen. You've probably had some of the most frequent contact with him. What is the right way to handle Vladimir Putin?
6: Well, it is sort of an art phenomenon in the sense that there hasn't been a dialogue with Russia about the basic structure of the relationship between Russia and the West. And there's a second problem, that the leadership in China, the leadership is more broadly based, and it is possible to conduct dialogues on a more general basis, while in discussions with Russia, the issue of who wins any particular diplomatic exchange becomes of great symbolic significance, especially to the Russian side. So paradoxically, even though the threat from Russia in terms of capacities is less than it was during the Cold War, the dialogue has been limited to relatively short-term issues. Charlotte, we're fans of dialogue on the
1: podcast, but there are some reasons that dialogue with Vladimir Putin hasn't been terribly easy recently. I was just trying to come up with a short list of things that have got in the way. And among those things, I think you would list the poisoning of two British people in Salisbury, the explosion at an ammunitions dump in the Czech Republic in 2014, which seems to have been the work of GRU agents, the Solar Winds hack, which we mentioned already, in which 100 American companies were hacked and nine federal agencies, the shooting down of MH17, the airliner with a great loss of life there, uh, the invasion of Crimea, the support for the murderous Assad regime in Syria, election interference in the US. I'm sure I've missed some things there, but I would submit that it's hardly the US government's fault that dialogue with Vladimir Putin hasn't been all that easy. Given all of that, do you think that the two sides can just sit down and try and find a way to work together?
3: I think it depends how narrowly or broadly you define work together. The idea of broad cooperation, as as you would with an ally, is clearly off the table. But in addition to all of those things that you just listed, there are a series of different domestic changes, of course, right, that have taken place under the the Putin administration, including reforms to the judiciary, making it harder for NGOs to operate, limiting freedom of assembly and so forth. I mean, it's just a very, very long list of anti-democratic policies, culminating, of course, with the extension of Putin's uh, own time in office in March 2020. He did away with term limits that would have forced him to stand down in 2024, um, so, you know, so it's a very long list of reasons why it's difficult to work with Putin. And the question is really whether you can get something sufficiently narrow um, and and frankly contain him. It's, it's not really about cooperation, as we heard in the prior segment, it's about containment and coexistence. Charlotte,
1: can I ask you one other question about America's approach to Russia? There are some people who say, well, the Russian economy is so dependent on Uh, oil exports, oil and gas exports, surely the US and allies can make life really hard for Vladimir Putin by somehow just shutting that down. You know a lot more about oil and gas markets than I do. Why is that idea so nuts?
3: Well, it's just not particularly realistic, in large part because of Europe. Europe gets about 40% of its natural gas from Russia they're not just going to throw that down the tubes. But I will say that the idea of being an energy power in the way that you might have thought of it in the last century doesn't really hold for Russia anymore. Um, And that's for a few different reasons. Even though Europe remains dependent on Russian gas, the European gas market has gotten much more competitive, in part because of American LNG, in part because of reforms within Europe to make uh, that market more competitive, various rules around the, the operations of pipelines, which I won't bore you with, um, but also the rise of renewable energy as an alternative to gas and power generation. There are all these ways in which Europe is steadily becoming a more competitive power market broadly, which then puts pressure on Russia. And the sanctions over Crimea were what helped spur Russia at last to commit to building a gas pipeline to China because it wanted to become less dependent on Europe. And in that relationship with, with the Chinese relationship, as with the relationship with Europe, you see an instance in which the importer actually gains more, is gaining more power over time. So after the first oil pipeline uh, from Russia was built to China, China refused to pay the agreed upon price. And so that's just one example of the ways in which actually being a petrostate or a gas state doesn't give the same kind of clout as you did in the past. And Russia is extraordinarily ill-prepared for the transition to cleaner energy. In our piece this week, there's a good statistic about how investments in clean energy in the five-year period before 2019 were a sixth the level of Brazil's and one-tenth the level of India's. And the rest of Russia's economy is hugely stagnant. So you see Russia dependent on hydrocarbons at a time when the energy mix is changing very rapidly around the world, where customers are gaining more clout and more independence with alternative energy sources. And so I don't really envy Russia's version of being an energy power.
1: So John, as Charlotte explained very clearly there, I think, America's leverage over the Russian government and the Russian
2: economy isn't what it used to be. Does it have other sources of leverage? Yeah, that's the big question, I think. There's sort of a philosophical mismatch in u s Russian dialogue that wasn 't there during the Cold War right during the Cold War, America and the Soviet Union were ideological rivals, and they both had at least nominally a vested interest in the flourishing and and sort of global appeal of the ideological systems they were selling. That doesn't really exist anymore, right? Vladimir Putin is a chancer, and what he wants is not a globally flourishing anti-liberal order, except to the extent that helps him stay in power. What he wants is to stay in power. And so if hacking an election will help him do that, he will do that. If not hacking an election will help him do that, he will do that also. The United States has a vested interest in the sort of predictability and reliability of a rules-based international order. Russia just has no interest in that at all. So it's difficult. There's an element of 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 almost of, of cynical nihilism in Russia's geopolitical position that makes it really hard to have a sustained, productive dialogue with.
3: I'll just throw in that I spent most of um, this week writing about and thinking about Biden's climate summit, which Putin participated in, but the most awkward moment of the day was when... Putin was scheduled to speak, and Biden, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and John Kerry, the climate envoy and former Secretary of State, were sitting sit, staring at a jumbo screen while Vladimir Putin just sat there looking bored and annoyed. Um, and he kind of reminded me of a high school jock who's in the back of a class thinking that this whole thing is just a waste of his time. And uh, I think that that is a bit apt for how Putin is and isn't participating in the broader, what I'd say, liberal order, international liberal order, where he says, "I'll occasionally show up, but this is not my thing, and you guys all know it."
1: So while Charlotte was doing Zoom calls with Vladimir Putin, the Russian president did withdraw at least some of his troops from the border with Ukraine. It's not clear how many are going to be left behind there. And while we've been recording this on Friday morning, we've just heard that Alexei Navalny has ended his hunger strike. So hopefully. That means that he's received some proper medical attention, and it also provides perhaps an opening for some de-escalation. And just to reiterate, there's really excellent coverage of all of this by our colleagues in this week's Economist. We've been drawing on some of their articles in our discussion here. So if you found it interesting, please do go and check those out. Right, Charlotte, John, before I let you go, uh, it's quiz time. The Economist reported on Vladimir Putin for the first time in August 1998 when he was appointed to his first big job in the highest tier of the Russian government. What was the gig?
3: He was an intelligence. He
2: was mayor of St. Petersburg, wasn't he?
3: Did you live in Moscow, John? Am I making this up? Did you have a. We did. Uh-huh. When did you live there? 2002. I think you're right, John Fasman.
2: What was your answer, Fasman? Mayor of St. Petersburg.
1: He wasn't mayor of St. Petersburg. He worked for the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak. So I was also in Moscow in 2002, John, at the same time as you. But sadly, we didn't know each other then. Otherwise, we could have hung out. I was also there. I was living in St. Petersburg in, in 1998 when Vladimir Putin got this job. And it was head of the FSB, the Russian Secret Service.
3: Hey, I said something under my breath about intelligence, but I you was did. so cautious. You did. You
1: should have stuck with that. I have yeah, learned he head
3: helplessness of F- on this quiz. Uh, <laughs> I can't trust you have to follow anymore. Fasman
1: blindly, whatever his answer is. Yeah, he was head of the FSB, which is the successor organization to the KGB. That piece that we published in 1998 attributed Putin's rise to power to his many virtues. Notably, when he was advising that liberal mayor of St. Petersburg, he wooed foreign investors with his fluent German. The last American president to speak German was FDR. FDR. Roosevelt was also the last president to have been fluent in any foreign language, unless you count George Bush Jr.'s smattering of Spanish or Barack Obama's rudimentary Bahasa Indonesia. All 46 presidents have been native English speakers, bar one. Which president learned English as a second language?
3: That is a good question. Um...
2: You've got to go early. Yeah. Was it uh, Van Buren? Van Buren, it was.
3: That You've is You've rescued remarkable. yourself in this quiz. I mean, if I wouldn't get in trouble for dropping my mic, I would drop it on your behalf.
2: No, early president in a somewhat foreign sounding name. That wasn't hard.
3: Seemed pretty hard to me.
2: You're too modest, John F. Eff-
1: well, that's it for this week. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to John Shields and to Nico Rofast for putting the podcast together. If you're enjoying it, please spread the word. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.